Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for joining us today. I'm so glad to be back with you guys. We have just such a great show today. Phil, who's on our show today? Well, before we get into who we have, which I am super excited about, um, and I know you are too, Karen. Yes. But I, I'm just celebrating the fact that we are now on episode 100. We have hit the century mark, and I, I'm just like blown away by what the first hundred episodes have have been and are because this is the hundredth. But uh, what what are your thoughts on this milestone? Yeah, it's a huge accomplishment. Definitely, still just privileged and honored to be a small part of it, um, and even you know being a part of your book that you published a couple of years ago and the the, the podcast being birthed from that. It's just wonderful. It's connecting and just really emphasizing collaboration of, of great minds across the globe, Phil. Yeah, no, it's something that I've talked to a lot of people about it and, and longevity is, is not necessarily a, a mark of, you know, success, but I think in this instance it is. I think this instance I've, I've been blown away by the people we've been able to get a part of it. And I've told people already, like, I wouldn't keep doing this if I didn't feel it was helping people. And I believe that the people that God has brought to this uh, podcast have just been phenomenal human beings who have so much incredible wisdom to offer. And so, and, I, and I've heard other people state the same. And so I'm just thankful for all of the guests, every single one of them and the people that we've already interviewed for the second hundred. Um, I, we haven't interviewed all of those people for the second hundred, <laughs> but a lot, you know, several of them. And, you know, I was just saying, you know, to you, Karen, you know, I was just telling you this before we recorded today, like how encouraged I am from the last couple of interviews I've been able to do. And, and it's, I just can't wait to get them out there. So, so that's, you know, the celebration that we're having right now. And the next episode, Karen and I are going to just talk about the first hundred, but today, we have a man that uh, I was so blown away by my interview with him at the uh, CAFO Summit a couple weeks ago um, that I just said, this guy's got to be our 100th episode. And Karen and I are going to talk a little bit after the interview about, uh, you know, why I thought that. And I think she, uh, you know, not necessarily saying it's the best interview we've ever done, but I think this guy gets it. This guy is um, just he's living it out. He's, he's really sharing tons of wisdom with us. And he, and he's done that through books. Um, he has written the anatomy of the soul, the soul of shame. He's a psychiatrist. His name is Kurt Thompson, MD. And here he is. Well, here we are at CAFO 2018 here in Dallas. Uh, I'm so excited for this interview right now because I'm, I'm, with, I'm sitting here across the table from Kurt Thompson, but uh, we also have a special treat, first time ever on the Think Orphan podcast. We have a co-interviewer and a former guest on the show, Pam Parrish, who has just recently published a book called The Gift, and it is, a, you know, I haven't read it yet because it's hot off the presses. She just handed it to me yesterday and I can't wait to dive into it another devotional for Pam so we'll talk about that some other time because today we get to ask some questions uh, and have a conversation here with Kurt so so Kurt welcome thank you it's great to be here 
And uh, let's just start with you um, and Pam. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be on here. Yeah, this is great. And, and the funny thing about this for you out there, we're all friends right now. So the cool part about this is as we were walking into the interview, Kurt and I were just going to have this conversation. Pam said, hey, Kurt, I'm so excited to see you. I've read all your books. This is fantastic. And I just said, hey, come on in and do this interview with me. So I was fangirling really yes. hard <laughs> and then feels like you can interview him. And I was like, I'm in. So, so that's where we're at. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Honestly, like this, as you know, on this show, if you've been listening for a while, we are not scripted. Mm. We, you know, we don't, we have not not shared even an interview outline here, but that's what makes it fun. Mm. And uh, I can't wait to see what God does in this interview. So, Mm. so Kirk, can you just share a little bit with our audience, just where you're from, how, how you got to be speaking on the CAFO stage uh, today? Well, it's a, it's a it's a great question, and um, I have to say that uh, where I'm from, I'm, I'm uh, from Northern Virginia, uh, where we've my family and I've lived since 1992. I've uh, been married for just over 31 years. We have a daughter who's 27, a son who's 24, and um, I've been uh, in private practice in psychiatry uh, since 1992, and in the last 15 years have uh, been growing in this field of what we call interpersonal neurobiology. It's this field that looks at this interplay between neuroscience, brain science, and relationships, and the way they affect one another, and uh, some of the exciting research that's uh, helping us see how the brain can change through growth in relationship, and how that growth in relationship and brain dynamism uh, doesn't just change me, but it can change us. It can change parenting. It can change marriages. It change relationships, change communities. And, um, you know, I, I wrote a book called Anatomy of the Soul back now, almost nearly eight years ago. And in it, we talk an awful lot about the interchange of neuroscience and attachment. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, Uh, This book was picked up and then used by um, a couple of groups that were um, working in the foster and adoption world. And I then received a call out of the blue from Ryan North and ended up speaking uh, at uh, their work here at Irving Bible Church. And after that, ended up being at CAFO. uh, And I, I came to understand that um, I, you know, before before then, this would have been about six years, six or seven years ago, I think. I came to discover that there is this entire world of foster and adoption care uh, of which I was completely unaware. Now, by that, I don't mean that I was unaware of the notion of adoption, um, but I was unaware of uh, the people who are working so hard in this field. And since the first time I was invited to come to CAFO about six years, five or six years ago now. Um, I've, you know, they've uh, graciously invited me back. Um, I, I, I guess it's okay for me to come back, so they invite me to come back. Um, but I can't tell you how humbling it has been, what an honor it has been to be with this group of people. Hmm. Um, and uh, because people are working really hard to follow Jesus and following Jesus into hard places here. And um, so it's been uh, really gratifying and, again, humbling to um, hear that the work that I've contributed in some way has perhaps been somewhat helpful for folks. So I'm grateful for the chance to be here and to be talking with you all. Yeah. 
Well, I know, I, I know uh, firsthand and talking to so many others that it definitely is helpful. And I've read Anatomy of the Soul, fantastic book. It's something that just fascinates me, even though um, I don't understand about half of it. But that's okay, <laughs> because uh, I'm learning. And that's, you know, I, I, and I know because my brain is plastic. And that's why. So it's great <laughs> to learn what you're reading. But um, and but let's let's kind of take off from that and go, go to the neuroplasticity and why, what does that mean? And, you know, as you share with our audience, and why is it so important to understand it um, in the context of orphan and vulnerable child care? I think for uh, most people, most of your listeners, I would guess, um, would be aware of the notion that, um, and it was true even in the medical field 30 years ago, um, when there was an, when there would be an injury to a physical part, if you would and injure your skin, if you would injure your, a bone, um, you, you intuitively would, would might be able to guess that uh, that organ would heal and that organ would be able to pretty much go back to normal functioning. But for many people, we just assume, we kind of know that if the brain were injured, if the brain had a certain problem that would take place with it, um, the brain would have a hard time. Neurons don't recover as easily as well, or sometimes at all. And when I was even in medical school, the, the common knowledge was that brains have a really hard time recovering. And what that would mean would be, whereas skin cells can heal and reproduce, where red blood cells are reproduced, neurons don't tend to do that, we were told. And then probably about 20 years ago, there was research that began to be done in different places, not least of which being not just in the U.S., but in Italy and other places, uh, in which it became more apparent that neurons are actually able to do more neurons. The brain cells are actually able to do more than we gave them credit for. And we began to discover ways in which the brain's capacity to do three things. When we talk about neuroplasticity, we talk about the brain's capacity to, A, grow new neurons. Mm -hmm. We didn't think it could do that before. And there are particular places in the brain where that happens, namely the place that was responsible for short-term memory, which is really a good thing. It can make new neurons. It can actually help those neurons grow in size and the larger they become the more efficiently they function and fire and the third thing is that they can grow in the density of their connection with other neurons which means you've got more options with which people can then connect neuron to neuron to neuron and the importance of all this is that not just when it comes to brain injury but we all understand that neurons as we like to say in the business those neurons that fire together wire together if we practice doing certain things, the neurons that represent that pattern of behavior or that pattern of thinking or the way I tell my story or the images that I keep in my mind when I remember what it was like to be beaten as a kid, those neural firing patterns can become rather permanent. And for many of us, they're so permanent that we think that they can't be changed. And what that translates into is my sense that my life can't be changed. The story of my life is what it has always been and will always be that. But with the advent of discoveries in the last 15 to 20 years about neuroplasticity, we're learning that, in fact, the brain can change. Mm -hmm. We also know that anything that I sense or image or feel or think or do, the things that I think about or tell about my story those are all represented by neural firing patterns. Right. And the great news is, is that 
as I tell my story differently, those neural firing patterns will begin to change. And the other great news is that those neural firing patterns can change because I'm having a kind of interaction with another human being that can help do that work so I'm not doing that work by myself. I don't have to depend upon my brain doing this work all by itself in order for those changes to take place. And in some cases, we would say, in fact, the changes in order to take place actually need the interaction with another human being. This then leads when it comes to relationships into this world of attachment where we've talked so often now about insecure attachment and how that's grounded in our stories of trauma and shame and the way new relationships in which I'm coming to be found by someone like I've never had before, those new relationships can begin to change my brain even without me being aware that that's taking place. The reason this is such great news for orphan and adoption care is that we know that anyone who's coming to the table from the position of having been given up as an orphan in some way, shape, or form, trauma has been part of my life. And I'm going to have to make sense of my life and cope with my life in that way. And if I'm left to do that all by myself, I'm typically going to make a set of patterns that will leave my story often less securely attached, less open to God, less open to renewal. Mm -hmm. But when others enter into my life, giving me the opportunity to feel felt, giving me the opportunity to be seen, to tell my story in new and fresh ways, it doesn't just change my life, it changes my brain. And in the course of doing that, my story can become different more permanently. Wow. Can I, I think what interests me, Dr. Thompson, is that, you know, the work that I do, I've been a guest on the podcast before, so the listeners, if they've listened to that, know I have eight daughters, um, seven are adopted, one biological, all as older teens. So we started this journey when our biological daughter was 11, five of them we adopted after 18. And what your work has done for me personally is helped me to realize that that neuroplasticity, that ability to change in my kids who others would say, well, they're, they're, they're fully baked at nine years old, mm, mm, but I'm mm, looking at an 18 mm, year old who's mm, been a part of our family for four years mm, and she's vastly different today than she was four years ago. That's beautiful. What hope, you know, if you could share with these parents that are stepping in and they're really scared of these older kids and that, that they're baked in and they're not going to change. What would you say to that? Well, I would say, um, first of all, um, you know, one of the things we know about neuroplasticity, this, this capacity of the neurons, the brain cells, to rewire, to be rewired in, in our minds, um, there are a couple of phases in which that neuroplasticity is more malleable, if right. you will. Uh, the first phase is from birth to about age five or six, and then it slows down a bit, and then we have another phase that really kicks up in early pre-adolescence and can last, for many people, usually until they're in their early 20s. But it might reach a peak somewhere in their mid to late teenage years, but it's still pretty flexible even into the mid, early to mid 20s. I think the really good news here is that um, we, we do have impressions of uh, our children, uh, our, if they're older children, if they're 8, 9, 10, 11, in the you know, teenage years, we have this sense that you know, their, their story has been written. And there's nothing that can be done to rewrite that. And, you know, what we're seeing is that the story of the gospel is a story in which God is 
serious about rewriting everybody's story. And it's not just metaphor, and it's not just make-believe, and it's not just a story in a book, but that those stories can be rewritten and will be grounded in and embodied in real changes that are taking place in the brain. And I think the beautiful thing that we're discovering about neuroplasticity is that especially when we find our kids in these vulnerable places, but as teenagers, um, the great news is not just that it's not baked, but that they may be at one of the more flexible times in their life where we as parents have an opportunity to kind of cooperatively with them help their story change even more powerfully. I think one of the other things that, you know, can I, I think that's equally significant about this is that, um, you know, we, we find ourselves living and working with children in this way. And this isn't easy to do. I mean, eight daughters, come on. That's, that's a lot of work. Okay. Like that's, I mean, it's a lot. Um, and I, I, I mean, like I'm deeply moved and impressed with that. Um, but I'm also, uh, and we can become overwhelmed with that, but I think here's the other key. It's not just that this information is helpful for me as a parent to know how I can be helpful for the child and what can happen in the child's brain. But it's also equally important for us as we recognize that my capacity to help the child do the most with their neuroplasticity is directly related to the question of what am I doing with my neuroplasticity? The real question for us in creating opportunities for secure attachment, or in this case, earned secure attachment to emerge in the life of our children is around the one variable, the single variable that is most important in terms of allowing that secure attachment to emerge is around the question of to what degree have I as the parent made sense of my own life? Who are the people in my life who are actively helping my brain to become more flexible, more adaptive, more coherent, and so forth? And so um, part of the hard work for us as parents is not just gaining more information to know what we're going to then be downloading for our kids, uh, but the most important hard work for us adults as adults is what is the work that I'm doing with God and with others around my own story that will enable me to give that gift to my children? There's so many things that you just said there. I, I, I encourage a few things here, folks out there. Like, first of all, rewind that, listen to that back because that was so rich. But <clears throat> I want to ask a few follow-ups. Well, the, the first thing I want to ask is where can people find more information about your books, about, you know, I know there's a bunch of videos out there that you've done, things like that. Is there a one-stop shopping forum to go to or is it pretty much? Well, they can, they can get them either, uh, the, the two publishers, Tyndale or InterVarsity Press. Um, and or you can get them on Amazon. Christian booksellers sell them as well. I think those are the main How about main your – do you have a website? That I do. Uh, www.beingknown.com. Being known, which, which is a, a good segue into that idea and that concept of being known. Today you talked about vulnerability. To be, to be known at your worst is so important. Um, that's that's a yearning people have, and and I think you you touched on some of those things, and you touched on the gospel. What I'd love for you to talk about is why is that important to be known, mm-hmm. and then what's what does the gospel have to do with this? Like right. like this is science and, and faith you're talking about here, right? But right. it's it has everything to do with it, right. which is what you said. But yeah. why? How yeah. how is that? Yeah, there are a few different questions, but I think you can right. merge well, them together. I, yeah, I would I would, I would find uh, they're, they're they're really. I mean, I I, I think they're important. I find them to be helpful questions for us to think about. Um, you know, 
Uh, who knows? I, I think there is this this sense in which, you know, we can always ask the question, why does God make the world the way he makes it right. any, in any number of different ways? But it would appear that he's been pretty serious around this notion that uh, in order for us to flourish, uh, we, we do so most effectively uh, modeling after our first parents. Our first parents were set up on the precipice of the new creation and they were set up naked and unashamed. They were set up to be vulnerable creatures, different, vastly, in some important ways, vastly, infinitely different, male and female. But shame was not going to be part of that conversation. It was not intended to be part of that conversation. And it is in those places where we connect with people vulnerably with whom we have the greatest differences that we maximize our creative capacities. Um, you know, as we like to say, uh, you know, you take one neuron and, you know, it's a pretty elegant thing. It's amazing what it can do. You put 100 billion of them together, but especially not 100 billion that do the same thing, but 100 billion that do vastly different things. And you get Tchaikovsky, right? You, right. you get CAFO. You get a whole range of different things that we would presume would not be created. But moreover, we don't have the capacity to predict what would be created either. That's the other thing about how the differences mean that I can't know that because we're exactly alike that we're going to think things the same way because you might be so different from me and not just male and female, but black and white, Hispanic and Asian and people from the northern and southern hemispheres and all these different yeah. things, the orphan and the well-heeled. Mm-hmm. It is in these structures of difference and vulnerability where it is in my vulnerability that I then say, like, I need your help. And in my needing your help and your coming to my aid, we create things together that otherwise would not even have been imaginable to create. Not just that we couldn't have made them. We right. couldn't even have imagined right. them to be created. And so we have this model that takes place in the brain. We have this model that takes place in Christian anthropology, male, female, we, they, coming together. And then I would say the gospel is all about the ultimate we, they, coming together. It is about this God that then comes to us and says it is not just those who are well that need the doctor. It is those who are ill. It is those pl- it are those places in our individual hearts and souls, in our social hearts and souls, where our pain, our woundedness, becomes the very place where God says, this place exists in order that the works of God might be revealed in it. In the same way that he said to the disciples about the man born blind in John 9. And the gospel then comes to create the opportunity for these vulnerabilities to create together in the absence of shame. And we say, like, this is what this is one of the major things that atonement is about, right? It is this notion of Jesus not just dying on the cross to check off a box for God. But it is about God being so with us in the places where we are most broken and most ashamed. And in that space, say, 
Resurrection is where this is going. This is, I'm not entering into this space of shame to say, yep, this is a horrible place and we need to dispense with you. We need to get rid of your, let's all agree that this isn't something that should be around. No, he's saying, in fact, it is in this very place where no one would imagine that good things would happen. I'm not just going to bring it back to baseline. I'm going to resurrect this into something brand new that is beyond imagination. And then in the, in the wake of that, calls us to do this together in community with each other, which is what it means to love our enemy mm-hmm. and to allow others to love the parts of us that we often hate the most. And that's what Ooh. I believe the call to the orphan is in James one twenty seven. you know, pure and undefiled religion to the widow and the orphan in their distress. Right. That's that exact right. call that God isn't calling us in this work into a pretty perfect picture. He's calling us into distress and into mess, and it's as much for us as it is for them. Right. Because together we create this atonement, this refinement. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we live in a world where, um, uh, you know, the evidence of goodness and beauty and joy is um, in our architecture, in our linens, in our families is the absence of any wrinkle or any blemish. It's the absence of anything very messy. Uh, it's certainly not an adolescent's bedroom, right? It's not that, right? That's not, <laughs> like, that's not evidence of the presence of God. Right, right? amen. Right? Especially the, yeah. <laughs> yep. yep, right, yep. okay. But, you know, um, if you look at the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon is largely what it is because of a long-standing massively disruptive mm-hmm. set of events. Yeah. And, uh, you know, caring for that which is different. You've got the Colorado River, which is very different than a piece of ground. And it just keeps running and it keeps tearing things up. And as it has run and torn things up over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, we have this unspeakable beauty. But if you're like, in the middle of the river at flood stage, like beauty is not what you're thinking. You're thinking like, I want out. But it is only in those moments where we step back and we say, no, this is what it brings. And in the same way, when we are working in these spaces with orphans and adoption and foster care, when we're in the middle of the river, it's not uncommon for us to say we want out. There is the part of us that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like multiple times a day. But what we often fail to remember is that that's just the first sentence in the 22nd Psalm. You get to verse 19 and the whole thing turns and it becomes a psalm of captivation, a psalm of triumph, a psalm of victory, a psalm of confidence. This is a God who wants to wade right into the center of this raging river in order to draw our attention to the beauty that he is making. And the odd thing is, like, that beauty can't become what it is without that kind of pain along the way. Whew. Wow. This this was so good. This is so, so good, folks. Um, this is why I love doing what I do. Um, you know, one of the things I never expected to come out of this interview was something that we talk a lot a lot about on this podcast it's one of the reasons we're doing the podcast is to encourage collaboration and to encourage people to work together because that is as you said that's what we're created to do but what you said there normally i do this after the interview but i want to i want to get dive a little deeper because what you said that 
when we work together with with people with think, with with organizations whatever it is that are different from us that's often when the most beautiful things happen and occur that's right right and man that's good I, and and i just you know when you kept saying that you talk about you know adam and eve and you talk about the um you know just the the creation that happens from man and woman coming together and creating a human yeah I mean, what more amazing and miraculous than the human body, right? Right. But to think about what we can do together if we don't think, oh, you're too different. But in fact, because you're so different. Right. That's exactly right. Imagine what can happen. That's exactly right. And not to mention the fact that um, having sex and having babies are extraordinarily messy physical events, Absolutely. like quite literally, like physically messy events. And, you know, God could have made... Uh, child conception and birth, much cleaner, right? A lot cleaner, and um, it's not, uh, and it's painful. Uh, in addition to being physically just like messy, things to clean up, and we're always in the business. Like I, I'm, I'm always in the business of trying to find how I can do things the cleanest. So like, how can I do this and have to, and at the, at the end of the day have the fewest dishes to wash? Mm-hmm. Like how can I do this and not have to like be worrying about cleaning things up? And God is saying like, I'm cleaning things up. You don't have to worry about the mess. Mm. I just simply want you doing the work that I've put before you with the people with whom you find yourselves being with the most differences. And um, but why we've said that like, this kind of work in neurobiology uh, always eventually points to justice. Mm-hmm. It always eventually points not just primarily to like I feel better as an individual human being, but to the degree that that's happening within me, I as a 55-year-old white guy need to recognize that like I'm sitting on top of the power gradient. And that means what am I doing in my relationships with women? What am I doing in my relationships with my African-American brothers and sisters? All these kinds of things. What are we doing with the orphan? In our, in our work mm-hmm. here in particular. And so, again, this notion that what God is doing outside in the world, outside of our skin, is a reflection of what he has made us to become like inside our own brains. Um, again, always just a powerful mystery uh, that is beyond words for me to express. Yeah, and, and you know, and it goes back to something you said earlier that I, I, I mean, I'm going to confess it's not going to be the first time I didn't know something that somebody said, but you <laughs> talked about earned secure attachment. And that concept where you know, say so secure attachment, earn secure attachment. Most of the people listening to the show know about attachment, know about the thought, the concept. It's not fully understood by a lot of the people, including myself, but we know it the gist enough, mm-hmm. right? But obviously attachment necessarily involves relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what is earned secure attachment? And when we talk about this relationship and collaboration that creates attachment, again, why is it so important for the for the audience? Maybe some people don't understand it, but why is attachment so important? And then what is their insecure attachment? And, and how is this relationship actually wiring the brain to be healthier in the midst of it? When we talk about attachment in general, we're really talking about um, a, a relational process, but we're also talking about a brain process. Um, you know, our kind of easy to remember definition of attachment is that it's a interpersonal relationship in which the infant brain uses the strengths of the adult brain to help organize itself. So the baby comes into the world with a certain temperament. Parents respond to the baby in a certain way, and the baby then responds to their parents' response. And that response that the infant offers 
is going to be a way that they attach to the parents. And they're doing so as a way to organize their own internal emotional world, internal mental world, but also, as it turns out, organizing their brain Mm -hmm. as well. We have ways of securely attaching, wherein which the infant is born into a family in which the parents are attuned to that infant's comings and goings. They're paying attention to what might be going on in that infant's mind. They're paying attention to the cues that the infant offers. And in so doing, that infant learns that they can depend upon their parents being attuned to who they are. Mm -hmm. They learn that they can depend upon their own emotions to signal to them and to their parents that they need help. And consequently, they learn how eventually to regulate their own emotions because they first learn how to do that in concert with their parents. Their parents help them by being with them, help them learn how to regulate their own emotional states. But it means that they learn to regulate their emotion. They don't get rid of their emotion. They don't hyper overact to their emotion. It's a well-regulated capacity that they develop. In families where either emotion is not really paid much attention to or in families where emotion is so in charge that it's running the show or especially in families where there is a fair amount of emotional injury or wounding, whether through neglect or through abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, those infants and then children become what we would call insecurely attached. There are different forms of this. It doesn't mean that those parents don't love their children. It means that the parents are providing an environment in which the children, doing the best they can, only are able to organize their mind, organize their behavior, organize their emotions in such a way that allows them to function the best they can. This does not necessarily mean that they're functioning in a healthy way. People who have insecure attachments end up having a disproportionately high rate of emotional difficulties, psychiatric problems and so forth, depression, anxiety, other kinds of affective state problems. When those folks with insecure attachments um, find their way to other people who start to notice them in ways that are helpful, This could happen for a child in a school. If you have a teacher that notices you, if you have a mentor or a coach, a youth group leader who starts to pay attention to your emotional life, your brain, the teenagers, the child's brain will start to wake up to someone else noticing this. That process of their waking up and beginning to become aware of things about themselves that they weren't aware of because nobody else helped them become aware of that is part of the process that we call earned secure attachment. I move from a place of being insecurely attached to a place in which my attachment is secure, but it has been earned. We've had work that we've had to do on purpose intentionally in order to get me to a point where I'm understanding my story differently I'm aware of how and what I feel and how to regulate that. I begin then to also learn how to engage other people differently. In addition to regulating my own emotion, I'm also better able to help regulate emotion between myself and someone else as that earned secure attachment continues to mature. But it is important to know that the earned secure attachment 
isn't something I can just go get by reading a book in the library. Right. It is going to necessarily require my interaction with another human brain, another person by whom I will feel felt, by whom I will feel myself being seen and heard and not just as an abstraction but as real time and space experience. We would say this is this is reflected in in Hagar's comment in Genesis, behold the God who sees me, I feel seen. And we would say this is what again, this is what the gospel is about. This is Jesus coming and saying, I see you right. in ways that no one else is seeing you. And that's one of the beauties that we see about this earned secure attachment. I, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me as you talk about that is that as a caregiver, as a parent who's coming into a, a child's life to help provide this attachment, what we need for ourselves mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. we're able to provide that, the role the gospel plays in that, because mm -hmm. so many adoptive and foster fa families feel so isolated mm -hmm. and alone. Mm -hmm. And even mm -hmm. in that space, mm -hmm. there's there's a God who meets them right. through his word. Right. Can you talk just a minute? Because that's what I love so much about your work is how you tie that in um, the gospel and what Jesus does. And that he set all of this stuff up from the very beginning. Well, I think that, um, you know, uh, it, it's true. We, we say that when, you know, if, if when we have children, you know, it's uh, whether whether they are biological children or foster or adopted children, um, it is it is certainly God's way to get to our unfinished business. And um, first, he will probably do that in marriage. And then he certainly if that hasn't been enough, he'll come he'll come for us with, yes, our, with our children. And um, I think in 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 some respects, uh uh, when I, in my encounters with my children, where in which uh, things are difficult, um, it's easy for me as the parent to say, uh, well, I'm having this difficulty with my child. I could name the things about my child that my child is doing and thinking and saying that are the problem. In essence, it is also the case that the problem at that moment is what I'm experiencing inside my own heart, mind, and soul. And so this becomes God's way of excavating and revealing these parts of my own story where there is now still yet unfinished business that's being exposed by my encounter with this child who's trying to just work out their stuff. This is, of course, where the gospel comes to speak to me, not just about my child, but about me, about these places where Jesus still has healing work to do with me. Now, part of our challenge, especially in the West, um, is, you know, again, we, we have a, we have, uh, we, we live with the assumption, with the tacit understanding that I am the master of my destiny and I therefore should also be the one who fixes all my problems. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, when that doesn't happen, um, I just do whatever it is I usually do to try to fix my problems just with more rigor. And this does not necessarily help me very much. Again, Reading, being immersed in the scriptures is uh, and 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 spiritual practices, for instance, crucially important for this. Um, but equally so is our willingness to uh, allow others to bear witness to our life. And so, the degree to which I'm going to be able to be present, to persevere, and to remain in that space with my child that is so difficult is directly related to the degree to which I myself have other people who are willing to remain in the space with me as I experience that difficulty. Because, of course, anytime I have a problem that I can't just quickly get over, 
I'm sure that my good friends, I, at some point, they're going to say, like, Kurt, what, like, when are you going to, like, get your crap together? Right. When are you just going to like like I like th- this is the, this is the story that I'm telling in my head. At some point, my good friends are going to say, like, like, we're done with this already, which is why we need people in our life who are not going to say that we need people in our life who are going to say, keep coming back. We're just going to keep talking about this. You can't make us leave the room because this is what God does for us. And so the gospel, uh, as we say, the gospel does not change us if it does not do so in an embodied fashion. And by that, we mean that quite literally, that the gospel doesn't mean anything to me if it just remains some theological abstract idea. It must be something that changes me explicitly in the way that I feel things viscerally in my body. And that necessarily requires at some point my interaction with other human beings. Yeah, we, you know, we're created to be in community. And that that's something that I think, you know, we unfortunately uh, – We've gone longer than I, I, these always go so stinking fast. And so, but we do have to wrap it up. And there's, there's a couple questions, um, that we always ask our guests. So you haven't had time to, to, to think about these. So hopefully you got some answers for me, but I'm sure, I'm sure you do. Um, the one question we ask is what have you read, listened to, or, or watched recently that, that has really kind of helped you understand better how we can love orphan and vulnerable children? Uh, well, I, I will. I will say this. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, so um, I'm. Uh, I have been uh, profoundly shaped by the work of uh, the missionary and theologian Leslie Newbigin, and um, you know he's written a commentary on the Gospel of John that's written for the lay public, but also written for theologians. And um, I, uh, I'm in the middle of that for the umpteenth time, and I would say that. Um, this, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting around chapters 8, 9, and 10. And uh, so that's one thing that I have read that has really profoundly, even, even in a fresh way, been changing me. Uh, I know this is not like, well, what's the latest book off the shelf no, that I'm reading? Great. Profoundly changing me, mostly because my capacity to care for the orphan is directly related to the degree to which I actually am aware that my own orphan state has been cared for. And um, I have, I've, I've just had some fresh, freshly revealed orphan states in the last uh, 18 to 24 months. And uh, they're not very fun. Uh, when you find them, no. um, you and you'd really rather just get rid of them. You'd rather like you you want to say mean things to them, and you want to you want and you want to say why why couldn't we have fixed this thirty years ago? A whole range of things, and so Newbigin's work there has been, I think, really helpful. Um, I've also been helped uh, along these lines. Uh, there's there's uh, work by uh, a gentleman by the name of Martin Laird, and he's written a book on contemplative prayer that um, is called Into the Silent Land. And I think that one of the main reasons why it's so difficult for us in any of these moments to tolerate the um, emotional upheaval that comes is because I'm not very aware that my emotional experience is not the essence of who I am. But so often I'm living so on autopilot that when my emotion comes because of the interaction of conflict that I'm having in my in, in, with my kids, I'm just kind of taken off by that. As opposed to the work that silence and solitude plays, which strengthens our capacity to both experience emotion and simultaneously, when we become aware that we're getting close to the precipice, pause, take a step back, and act on purpose in the next five seconds the way that I really want to be acting. 
And so I would say that um, the work with Laird's book, uh, it's a small little book that's been profoundly helpful. I I tell people, you you can read it in a day and you will use it for the rest of your life. Fantastic. And and this question we also um, ask all our guests and often it's just flat out unfair, but that's okay because we, you know, I ask the questions. So if if you, uh, you can pass though, if you can't think of one person, but just because I didn't give it to you in advance. So I'm going to give you that, but hopefully you have someone. If there's one person that's had a real impact on your life um, in helping you understand uh, how we can love orphan and vulnerable children better. Um, you know, I, I, uh, if it's, if it's one, if it's one person, um, I, I would say, um, when it, when it comes to this, you know, it's funny. I, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. So I, uh, and, and I would say that this, this person has probably, I mean, this person is no longer living. Mm-hmm. Um, but this person, uh, in, in many respects, in the same way that we shape our children profoundly in the years uh, that they are developing in our homes in ways that they have no idea and will never, ever have any conscious idea of how they've been shaped by us as parents. Um, when I was uh, in my formative years, my, you know, my school years, uh, the pastor who came to our church, his name was Milton Coleman, and uh, he was our pastor for 12 years, my grade 1 through 12. Um, but for the 17 years before he came to my small little Evangelical Quaker Church in Mount Pleasant, Ohio, town of 800, before he and his wife came there to minister, they had been missionaries in India for 17 years. Okay. And um, they, uh, the, the work that they did as missionaries uh, in no small way involved care for orphans. That wasn't the only thing or the primary thing that they did. But as missionaries in India at the time that they were ministering in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, like, you, that's, that's what you're going to do, right? You're going to be caring for every, the poor, the impoverished, of which orphans were a significant part of that. And, you know, in some little small town in Ohio, it would not be, you know, you wouldn't expect to be hearing sermons about orphans in India. You wouldn't be expecting to hear that in 1968, right. like, yeah. 69. Right. But those were the stories that we heard. And I would have to say that, um, you know, when the new heaven and earth arrives... I'm going to find Milton Coleman. Hmm. And I'm going to find him right away. And I'm going to tell him that he couldn't have known that the work that he did pastoring our church and being an example to us and opening my imagination to what it means, even as a young kid, what it means to care for the poor and the impoverished. Um was an influence that was taking place for me that I didn't know that I didn't know. And so I think that would be my answer. Wow. Well, thank you so much Mm. for sharing this time with me and with Pam. I know uh, we're the better for it. Um, I hope that uh, you were encouraged as well. Mm. Um, So so thank thank you you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Phil. It's been great to be here. Thank you. Well, I said it many times throughout that interview, and I'll say it again. Wow. This man has so much um, wisdom. That that interview is just scratching the surface. Uh, his books, just 
you know, lay out so much of this stuff in, in more detail. And, and I, I strongly encourage each and every one of you to grab those books and, and read them and learn from this man even more than you did, hopefully in that little bit that we were able to talk with him. So Karen, what, what did you think from, uh, what do you think about that interview with, with Kurt? I loved it. I loved literally every second of it. He had me at neuroplasticity. Hill. <laughs> he had me, um, you know, you guys, if you listen to the podcast and you've listened to any of my comments, you know that this is just like my bread and butter. I'm so excited that he was able to be on the podcast. Um, the way that he's able to synthesize so much information, not just theology, not just gospel centered parenting strategies, but also science and attachment and neuroplasticity and the brain. And um, it's just so great. And it's not jargony. It's not heady. It's just such a great presentation of what we do know to be true. And it's not things that we just kind of think might be a possibility now, but no, like we know for a fact that our brain can change. Mm -hmm. And I think those of us that are believers, like we know that, and our hope is in the biggest changes possible that, you know, Jesus changes our hearts and our lives and our minds. We know those things, but to, to have science backing us up that says, no, literally there is always hope for a child and wait for it, a teenager or a young adult that our brain can change and they are not, um, they're not damned if they don't have families, if they have been vulnerable and if they have been orphaned, that there's hope for change. And he just lays it out for us in a really uh, straightforward, gospel centered, but also very scientific way. And that just gets me really geeked out. I, yeah, I was, I was just sitting there across the table from, this is one of the, the great, I'm so glad I was able to do this one in person. And I, I do not want to, you know, I meant to say it before the interview, but you know, this, this was such a pleasure to do uh, this interview. The other thing about the hundredth episode to do this interview with Pam Parrish, who, who asked right. some great questions, but it was just so much fun, especially since she was already on the show. And, uh, you know, that really did, uh, it was not planned. She showed up right before that interview, introduced her to herself to, to Dr. Thompson and, and said, Hey, I said, Hey, why don't you do this with me? And we had a blast. So it was, it could have, it could have gone off the rails and I don't think it did. So, um, what'd you think about that? How cool was that? No, she did a great job. I was actually kind of thinking, wow, she'd be a great co-host. <laughs> you need to keep her in the pipeline for when you need a substitute. She did a great job and you could hear her um, excitement and like her parenting excitement, but also her excitement of just getting to interview someone that, you know, she's learned yeah. from. And um, it was really kind of genuine in, a, in an awesome way. Not that you weren't genuine, but um, it was a, a nice a nice addition to the interview. And I think her questions were so on point and really helped him to provide what our audience, I think, could really learn from mm -hmm. and, and hear. It's almost like she pinpointed and pulled out just really great things. Because I, I, I have no doubt that um, this man could have probably talked for eight hours with really important and helpful content, but she was able to kind of pull some super helpful stuff. Absolutely. No, I, I think we need to do more of that. I, I think in all in all seriousness, we need to do more of that. If you want to be a guest interviewer out there, you know, let us know. And, and if you, I imagine most of you liked it. Um, and uh, and I, I was uh, definitely genuine in that. <laughs> I was blown away. I was, I was not <laughs> yeah. making up those. Wow. 
things. I, I was just <laughs> like, okay, what do I, where do I even go? This guy's just kind of hit it out of the park again, each answer. And, and like you said, I was so cool with, with Pam for like, Hey, I got eight kids, you know, and they're adopted kids and I got it going through this stuff. And I'm just sitting there going, yeah, I couldn't ask that question. You know, I could say, I know people who have done X, Y, she's like, I'm going through the, what, what the heck, you know, and I've, I've, I've read this and I've done this and, and that was so cool. So, you know, which, which I think, um, really goes to the next thing I want to, I want to have you talk about, which is, you know, where you said how we can maximize our creative capacities when we collaborate with people most different from us. How cool is that? Like, I mean, what, what do you, what do you, what do you think of when you, when you heard him say that? Yeah, it's absolutely on point and just challenging us in so many ways from a gospel perspective of, you know, God is always there with us and, and he's He's there and he sees us in all of the junk and all of the darkness and um, in all of the pain and, and the areas that we feel shame in and those difficult moments, those areas that maybe we're unaware of, um, that's kind of a blind spot for ourselves, but knowing that, you know, other people have those areas. And just because someone may not be on the same page as us, or maybe even in the same book, that that collaborative mindset, which you've heard over and over again on this podcast through multiple seasons, having that collaborative mindset, being willing to learn from others is such a crucial part of, of healthy relationships. It's such a crucial part of parenting, to be quite honest, especially when you're bringing children into your home who have different stories, whether that's through foster care or domestic adoption or international adoption or, or blending families in other ways. Um, our kids, our teenagers have differences. And a lot of times those differences are not fun and exciting to walk through, but even being willing to learn through that and to really see what God is is doing in your story um, through these differences, whether that's in parenting, whether that's in your job, whether that's in um, any type of consulting or collaboration that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've been super encouraged even when I posted something about this interview, just seeing how so many people have been impacted by Dr. Thompson's work. And, and I'm just glad we're able to share it with some of you out there who may not have heard of him. Uh, maybe you've seen him at CAFO, but only get a couple minutes uh, that he's able to speak there to hear some more um, in this interview, but also being, you know, hopefully getting you to go and, and read more about this stuff because it's so important in this work that we're doing to understand these issues. And, you know, and, and Karen, obviously you've studied this in depth and you talk about this with people on a daily basis and you know, you know, way more than I do about these things. But as I'm learning these things, um, you know, these are becoming neuroplasticity is not some big foreign word. Now it is a big word still, but it's not foreign <laughs> to me anymore. Um, and we're in, and I do encourage you folks out there, if you did listen to this and you just got lost, you know, or he had you at neuroplasticity, if you got lost at <laughs> neuroplasticity, don't give up on it because this stuff is, it's, it's really to, to understand it is not that difficult to understand it, to get into the depths of it. Obviously it could get, you know, really difficult, but to understand the basic ideas that really help us in the work that we're doing and to understand what we don't know so we can get other people who do know it to come in is not that hard to get to that point. And so I encourage you to push through that initial barrier of, I don't get this. This is like, you know, cause Karen, you and I have the curse of knowledge to a certain extent, right? You, you more so right. than I do. Right. So you're hearing it and like geeking out. Other people are, are hearing it and saying, I have no clue what this guy's talking about because he just is using these big words, but really 
take that time to understand it. Take that time to really understand what he's talking about and how it applies to this work that we're doing. Because if you're listening to this podcast, you at least have an interest in helping orphan and vulnerable children in some way. And these issues, these are so encouraging to hear these studies, this, this science and, and really how the gospel is, you know, informs all of this as well. So what, what are your, what are your last thoughts about, about uh, Dr. Thompson before we go into the, the recommendations? Yeah, uh, just to kind of piggyback on where you were with that thought, Phil, even if, you know, you're listening to this or you hear some things on our podcast that that may seem like, what are they talking about? You know, feel free to shoot us an email or send us a message on social media. I don't know Dr. Thompson personally, but I bet there's someone that either works for him or he himself would be willing to um, respond and shoot you like a short email or a long email with some resources of additional um, books you could read or audio books you could listen to or short videos you could watch. There's so much content available now um, due to the awesomeness of technology where these kind of jargony types of um, scholarly and clinically books, there's so many other ways to learn about this stuff, especially um, for individuals working with children who come from hard places, whether that's parenting or caregiving in any capacity or in whatever way that you're connected with orphaned and vulnerable children. There's so many great resources that can just help you to press in more and understand why, why is it important that our brains can change? That's so important. That's crucial, crucial, crucial information. And knowing that there's hope for our kids, there's hope for teenagers, there's hope for young adults. Um, ultimately our hope is in Jesus Christ, but there is hope because their brains can change through healthy relations. Um, another great part that he talked about that I want to reference really quickly because I never want to let this slip by because it's so very important. I'm a broken record when I say this and I'm going to keep saying it in my clinical practice. So often I'm working with families who've grown through foster care and adoption and I'm working through adult attachment issues. And what that means, and you heard Dr. Thompson talking about it, if you listen to the podcast, it's the concept that says this isn't just about my child. This isn't just about my child or my teenager's problems. I am in this too. And God, is doing a work in my life as well. And I have to be present and intentional. And I have to understand that I have to be getting help. People have to be pressing into me so that I can be present and aware of what God is doing in my life and within my own story so that I can give that gift back to my children so that I can give this metacognitive, this earned secure back to my kiddos. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that that is... So important, so, so important. Well, before we get to the uh, the recommendations, one thing that I, I know that Dr. Thompson re- refers to over and over throughout his book, and he mentioned it indirectly throughout his interview, was uh, the book Parenting from the Inside Out by Dan Siegel, which we have recommended on the show a couple times. By we, I mean Karen, because I haven't read it yet. Oh, yes. um, but I apparently need to go read that as well. Um, but I also want to know, Karen, is clinically a word? Yes. Okay. It is, okay. Actually. Okay. Okay. I'm just making sure. Making sure. No, I don't know. Okay. No hey, it sounds good. It, it's a word in my. We brain. all know what you meant, so that's all that matters. <laughs> that's something that I have told my kids many, many times. If we know what you mean, <laughs> it's a word. So um, anyway. Now we'll bring it back to the very serious, serious part of the show, the recommendations. Phil and Dr. Karen recommend today. I have a recommendation that is a little unorthodox recommendation. 
It's one that is not actually, um, I, I kind of just made one, I guess, so it's kind of unfair, but that was one we've made several times before. But this is a recommendation to listen to podcasts, to read books, to, you know, maybe watch documentaries that you disagree with, that you know going in, you will disagree with the people that are on the podcast, that are writing the book, that whatever the idea is, that it's going to challenge your thinking. And I'm not saying to go in and, you know, and, you know, purposely just read something to try to change your mind and thinking like, I'm going to go in and, and totally change everything that I believe and think. You know, the hope is that you have strong convictions, you have strong beliefs, and you're going to go in to read these books, to listen to these things, to learn and to understand people different from you, to understand, and it will help you have more empathy in, in the world. And that's something that I have ne- needed to work on over the last few years is empathy. It's something that when my wife found out that it was 33 out of 34 on my strength finder, she said, yep, that makes sense. And when she said that and it was like, dang, you know, I better do something about this. And when we see these things that I call them not strengths, not necessarily weaknesses, they're just not strengths. And, you know, and we can, we can strengthen these things, right? And so it's something that when we challenge our thinking, when we go into things that we don't agree with, that we don't understand necessarily, we seek to understand, that helps our empathy a ton and it helps us to become just quite frankly, people that are better to be around and that are, that are hopefully going to be more helpful in this time that is so just lots of vitriol and hatred going on that we can actually really work ourselves to be better in civil dialogue, to be better in loving, to be better. And then, you know, if some people out there go, well, Phil, you're like becoming a super liberal guy and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what? That's so not helpful. And it's not true for us to try to understand people. And I'm, I'm getting really tired of it, quite frankly, because it's not, you know, there's, there's obviously arguments on the other side as well. Um, but I think that you can hold strong convictions, listen to things, try to understand things better and still hold on to those strong convictions. And you can really still love other people by hearing them, understanding who they are. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to be talking about some tough issues in season five. Some, you know, some of these guests, I know going into it, I disagree with them and I will disagree with them. That's okay. I can still have a great conversation. I can still ask them hard questions. I can still seek, seek to understand and help people out there to seek to understand these same folks. So any thoughts on that, Karen? Because I think that's a pretty, pretty heady thing in, as well. But uh, I, know, I know you agree with that. But any thoughts on that to, to bring, it, bring it to home? Yeah, I think it's um, kind of a, a macro version of, of what you've heard me talk about with um, with parenting and, and member care of, it's so helpful to take perspective. Um, you know, my, 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 um, good friend who I actually don't know, but I'll call him my good friend and guru, Dr. Dan Siegel, (laughs) he calls it chasing the why essentially you're taking that concept and you're bringing it to a larger level and saying that I'm, I'm willing to kind of take perspective and chase the why and figure out like where, where is, where are these people coming from? You're not doing that to try and change your own viewpoint. You're just trying to understand them a little bit better. And when we chase the why, when we try and, and seek out, where is this coming from? It usually helps us increase our compassion and our empathy for either a child or a coworker or someone that you may not know, but you know, has a different viewpoint than you. And I never think we can go wrong when we're increasing our compassion and our empathy for a fellow human being. Absolutely. Well, folks, this brings the first hundred episodes to a close. 
And uh, thank you out there for being a part of this. Thank you for engaging this conversation. Thank you for downloading this and hopefully many and many other episodes. I look forward to hearing from you, um, whether it's offline, in person somewhere, whether it's emailing, whether it's Facebook posts or whatever it may be. Thank you for sharing this with other people and thank you for just really... Um, really working to understand how you can love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. And that is what I've said. And that's how I close out these episodes. And that's what I really, really mean that I do hope and pray that you take everything that you're learning here, everything, the different conversations you're having with different people and you take it and you use it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.